we get into the word again this morning, I want to recap last week just a little bit. Really, those first few verses of the book of Hebrews, we see that God spoke. And he spoke in many times and in many ways. That God didn't speak little, but God spoke much. Many times, many ways, through the prophets, right? We have the Holy Scriptures. We have the Old Testament in our hands. We can read the, the law. We can read the prophets. We can read those beautiful books of poetry. And in there, you see, woven through it is God speaking through his prophets, through his human agents, guys that are so broken and sinful, but yet God delivers his perfect word through these vessels, does that encourage anybody? Does that encourage anyone besides me? Like there are so many times where I like, and there's this tension in me where I'm getting ready to step into the pulpit and to preach God's word. I'm going, why me? Like why, how could you use me? How could you, how could you choose me to deliver your word? I know how broken I am. I know how sinful I am. Let's, let's call it what it is. We like to use words like broken we're like just broken and flawed. Like, no, downright sinful and evil at times. Rebellious towards my God. That tension in my heart where I know what is right, yet I still choose to do what is not right, what is wrong. But yet God used his prophets and used guys like David and used the, to, to write down his words by the inspiration, the, the breathed out Holy Spirit, so that you and I would see God. He spoke many. He spoke much in many times and in many ways. God's perfect message then comes. He says, but now he has spoken through his son. So God's perfect message through his perfect son. And it's nothing but pure grace on God's part for him to speak to us. We do not deserve his life-giving words. If God could not or did not speak, we'd be left in darkness and in ignorance. That's a quote from Al Mohler from his uh, commentary on the book of Hebrews. It is nothing but the pure grace of God and his part to speak to us. Because if he didn't speak to us, if we didn't have those inspired scriptures in our hands, we would be left in utter darkness. Think about Psalm chapter 119. Verses 105, you guys know this. You probably memorized it as a kid. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illuminates our lives. It illuminates our goings. It illuminates our efforts. Words like long ago and in these last days help point to the fact that the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the New Testament. We touched on that last week just briefly. That the words of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the New Testament. The, these these new Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to, they may have felt that this was all about Jesus. Like, it, like this Jesus stuff was all new to them. Like maybe this was this, this new thing that God's revelation, God speaking through and in his son, in some sense, like it is new. It was new to them. But the author of Hebrews is trying to tie it all together for him, chapter after chapter, showing that it's not just new or a new story, but it in fact is the climax and the conclusion to God's total redemptive story. That in Christ Jesus, it's not just a new chapter, a, a new thing, but it is the climax and the conclusion to the overall redemption story woven through the entirety of Scripture. Long ago. 
many times in many ways, but now in these last days. What you have in the Old Testament is promise. What we have in the New Testament, that new covenant in Christ, we have the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus. So God has spoken through his son, the one who created all things. That was John chapter 1 we looked at last week. He's the one who upholds all things. He sustains all things and keeps all things together, all things going. That's pretty awesome because he's going to sustain you too. He's going to sustain you. We press into his spirit. We press into his presence, and he will sustain you. He promises it. He upholds the universe. He will uphold you. I don't know what you're going through right now. Actually, I know some of your stories right now. I know some of the stuff you're going through right now. Please know that he will sustain you. Trust him. Amen. He will sustain you. Al Mohler, in his commentary, Exalting Jesus in Hebrews, points out the amazing doctrines touched on in just these first few verses that we looked at this last week. The doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of creation, the trinity, the relationship with the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've got this beautiful Christology just in these first few verses. You have the doctrine of atonement highlighted in these first few verses. And even deeper, he points out this, this immense Christology in these first few verses, like I said, right? And, and I don't know if you understand exactly what Christology is, but basically it's, it's the theology of Christ. It really is the core and the, the central piece to our theology, what we believe about Jesus. Years ago, um, by God's grace, uh, we, were, we were kind of pulled out of a church situation that really, unfortunately, kind of not, didn't end great. Church kind of got caught in the weeds, caught up in kind of the, the church growth movement kind of stuff. And I, I used to say it, it became about butts and budgets. <laughs> butts in the seats and bigger budgets, right? Tractional ministry. It became about attendance and not about the, the, the purely the, the glory of Christ and, the, and the, the proclaiming of his word. And, and by God's grace, like I said, kind of pulled us through there. And, and we, we, we found a group that we, we still affiliate with now. And it's a church planting group called Acts 29. I remember the first boot camp we went to. Everything up to this point, like all these different conferences we go to, all these different meetings with pastors, it was, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you guys doing that works? What are you, like, what are you guys doing over there? What are, you guys, what are you guys doing that works? And it was all about methods. It was all about what are you guys doing that gets people in your door, that attracts people? What are you doing? It was method-driven. What are you doing that works? I remember going to this boot camp with these guys from Acts 29. This preacher got up there and he started sharing. Listen, guys, it starts with, Je- it starts with this. It starts with Jesus. It starts with your Christology. It starts with... What you believe about Jesus, that's the center of your theology. And out of your theology then comes your missiology. And that's your mission. Like you, from your theology comes your mission. And then out of your mission comes your ecclesiology. And that's a fancy word of how you do church. And that then affects your methods. And I was like, whoa. So it like we start way back here with Jesus 
as the center of our theology, that then informs our mission, our missiology, that then informs our ecclesiology, then now all of that informs everything else. And for somehow, some way, like I was being trained in, that it starts over here with methods and start, starting over here with Jesus. The author of Hebrews points out this beautiful Christology, the central focus of our theology. He is the Son of God. That he is the revelation of God. That he is the fulfillment of God's revelation in the Old Testament. That he is the heir of all things. That he is the agent of creation. That he is the radiance and the imprint of God's glory. That he is the expression of his nature. That he's the preserver of all creation. That he's the purifier of God's people and the mediator for God's people. Just in these first four verses, we have this immense, beautiful Christology. Oftentimes when we speak of Christ, we like to frame it, I like to frame it in the phrase, the person and the work of Jesus. We do that with intentionality. And the author of Hebrews does that too. And in this commentary that I've been uh, immersed in these last couple of weeks, the, uh, Al Mohler po points out that there's a problem with Christians when we talk about Christ that many times we jump over the person and we just start talking about his work. We start talking about the cross. We tar start talking the, about the atonement, the blood that was shed. We talk about purification for sins. And all of that is great and awesome and really like very much a central point of our uh, of our Christianity, of our theology. But I love the way that the author of Hebrews doesn't just start there with the work, but it gets into the person of Jesus. And you got to start with those first things first, and that's what we're doing here in the, in the book of Hebrews. So again today, we're going to focus in on the person of Jesus, who he is. And again today, it's my prayer that we would behold him, that we would see him, not just notice him, but behold him, like that, that, that seeing that becomes a treasuring, it becomes a cherishing, that we would see his infinite worth and that we would more deeply and more beautifully and continually worship him with lives abandoned. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be reading verses 5 through 14, but we're going to jump back actually to verse 3 first, just to kind of give us that lead in here. So verse 3 says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5, this is brand new today. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. I love this. this is God speaking of his son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray before we continue on. Actually, before I do this, uh, if you've been here any length of time, you know that I do this once in a while. I, I want you guys to pray. I'm not going to pray just for, just for a second here. Um, I want you to pray. I want you to have an active part in this moment for what you would like God to do in this service through his word and his spirit today. So you pray. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold you, to behold the Christ, that these lives be transformed by you and your power, that we might truly be the church, your church, to the glory of your name. We love you. Hear these prayers and answer them, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So angels are probably not that big of a deal to us. I feel like in our culture, in our day, and, and maybe in our church traditions, angels aren't really a big thing to us. Um, maybe, maybe if you grew up in a different tradition, maybe whatever, maybe you talked about, I remember my grandparents, my grandmothers in particular talking about guardian angels uh, a little more often, seems like a little different time, but I, I think most of us likely either, either live in ignorance or denial of the reality of the spiritual realm. Like angels and demons, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, principalities of darkness, and I think like for the most part, and I think this is really a scheme of the enemy, just being honest with you, like we are either ignorant or in denial of the spiritual realm. That there are, fact, in fact, principalities and powers that are at work in the world. Yes, angels, ministering spirits of God and of the Son, and yes, fallen angels, demons at work to seek and destroy minions of, of, of the devil himself. Talked about this just a few weeks ago, like even in our prayer service that we did. You know, the fact that there is a spiritual battle, that we need to battle in that realm. This is why when we fall short in prayer, how detrimental it is. Like, I wasn't planning on doing this. I shared a quote in pre-service prayer. Uh, a book uh, called Forgotten God, Francis Chan, book on the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm just kind of going over again, read it years ago. Just kind of looking at some, some different things in there. And, I, and I'm going to butcher right now because I wasn't planning on doing this. But there's a thing, there's a thing about church where what we can do is we can rely completely on our strategies and our own strength when it comes to church. And you can and I can for our own lives. But when we've been claimed by Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are called to walk by that Spirit and not gratify our flesh. And there's a, there's a spirit realm that happens here. And in the, in the church, there is supposed to be the power of God, that, that we call upon the power of God, and that, that when, when we only operate in our flesh, or we only operate in our own strength, and our own might, and our own determination, what we end up with is human-sized results. That's it. That's all we're left to. 
It's all we can muster up is maybe like a good entertaining time on a Sunday morning when you could be golfing or fishing or staying in bed later. I don't know. Gardening. We've gathered here under the banner of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit like to call upon his spirit, to call upon his power, to be changed and transformed and, and, and into the image of Jesus more and more. Christ, our God, bigger, better than the angels. I think, like, like I said, I, I don't think we think about the spirit realm let alone, like, the, the, the Holy Spirit, let alone angels and demons. I think most of the time when we think about angel, angels, we think, we think about cute, chubby little cherubs with rosy cheeks. Think about Valentine's Day. When I look at Scripture, these were fearsome beings. Think about the story of Jesus. Think about the story of the incarnation. Gabriel comes to Zechariah in Luke 1, then he goes to Mary in Luke 1. They appear to the shepherds. They announce the birth of Jesus. And what's the first thing out of their mouths always? Fear not. Would you, could you imagine, like, walking into a room and people just see you and you're going to, no, 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 don't panic. <laughs> don't be scared. They had to have been fearsome creatures. Angels were a bigger deal to the first century uh, Judaism than what we understand. There's some verses even in Acts chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, and we'll see in Hebrews chapter 2 that indicate that angels themselves had a hand in the delivery of the law to God's people. This would add to the valuing or the prizing of angelic hosts in the hearts and minds of the audience of the book of Hebrews. So the author goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is better, that he is superior to the angels. He's not just a messenger. He's not just, but he, he, he's not just some heavenly being, but he is God's son. He's not a created being, but he's the eternal word. He's the one who was and is to come. He's the one who was there in the beginning and the one in whom all things were created. We see a similar discourse to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, he is the image, last week we talked about radiance and imprint, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on that phrase, firstborn. You know, a lot of times we think maybe like, I, uh, well, I, I just don't want you to get hung up on it. That, that, that's basically a phrase that means preeminent, not created, okay? Just so get that in your brain first. Right? You think about firstborn, birthright. It was all a big deal in these ancient cultures. Okay? So not created, preeminent. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and inv invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. When the Bible says all, what does it mean? All. Thank you. All things uh, were created through him and for him. Right? He's the heir of all things. And he is before all. All things, and in him all things hold together, right? We, last week we looked at he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things are held together in him. Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. Thank you, Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn, again, don't get hung up on that, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God, right, radiance and imprint, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the, bond of, by the blood of his cross. So Paul to the Colossian church gives the person and the work, not a created being, not a heavenly being, not just a heavenly being, not an angel or a messenger, but he is a son. Verse 4 points explicitly to Jesus being superior, superior to the angels and points out that his name is one that he has inherited. Verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That commentary that I referenced, Al Mohler, basically gives a couple of thoughts here. One thought is that if you follow the logic of, of Philippians chapter 2, um, you might be able to land and, okay, so what's this name that he's inherited? What's the name that he has inherited that is far superior? Right? And Philippians 2 points that he humbled himself as a servant, not equaling, uh, counting equality with God, something to be grasped. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and given him the name that is above every name. And then later it says that every knee will bow and tongue, con tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are some scholars that have pointed this going, the, the name that he has inherited is Lord. And maybe, maybe, but quickly you see that that's just not what not that just he's, that he is the Lord, but he has a deeper, more intimate relationship. There's a oneness and a unity in the fact that he is called son. There's this closeness and intimacy with the Father that angels do not have. There's a oneness and a unity with him. He's called son. For the last... Uh, Last five years or so before my dad passed, I, I didn't even, it didn't even dawn on me until this week in studying this passage. About the last five years, my dad started calling me son more often. Um, and I, I didn't really get it. Like, he never spoke kind of in those terms like that. Like, hi, son. We'll see you later, son. And he would just say son. He didn't say Kev. He didn't say whatever. And I didn't, it didn't really dawn on me the preciousness of that. And what he, there was probably more intentionality to what he was doing than what I realized. But that intimacy, the fact that we are one nature, the fact that we are one, like, I carry his name with me. Yes, the last name. I'm also Kevin Richard. Got his middle name, uh, for my middle name as well, his name. He is superior to the angels because he is the son of God. All right, verse, uh, verse 5. Let's look at Hebrews uh, 1, verse 5. It says this. And this is like the start of about 35 or so quotes in the book of Hebrews that we talked about last week. Verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? There's our indication. There's that inherited name that is above all. Not just a son, but my son. Today I have begotten you. That comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, again, more quotes. It says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's from Psalm chapter 104, verse 4. They are his ministers. They are sent out by him. He is superior to them. They are ministers on his behalf. Let's read uh, verses 8 through 14. But of the Son, he says, this is what he says to the angels, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, your throne, O God, that's God calling Jesus God. That's the Father calling his Son God is, of, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness, excuse me, the uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's actually from Psalm uh, 45, verses 6 and 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That, again, is from Psalm uh, 45, 6 and 7. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Anybody have a, a closet and, and dressers full of old, old clothes? Like now that we're transitioning seasons, you're like, oh, time to clean house. Old garments, right? Got to roll them up, throw them out, donate them. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. To you, and excuse me, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110, verse 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are in, to inherit salvation? Oh, man, that's so good. These angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who would inherit salvation. We see here his majesty. We see here his, his throne, his scepter of uprightness, his kingdom. That this son is a king. These angels are, are sent out as ministering spirits for our sake, for us who will inherit salvation. And you might have noticed in this list of, of, of scriptures that we just read here in Hebrews chapter 1 that I skipped over one. And I skipped over it because it's my favorite one of all of them. Yes, I love the, his enthronement. I love his, his, this, 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 this talk about his kingship. But there's an element of this in his superiority to the angels that I love. Verse 6 says, and again, when he brings the firstborn, again, that's, that's preeminent, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. If he was not superior to the angels, he would not be worthy to be worshipped. This is the one that I love. Yes, Christ glorifies the Father. Yes, he acts and moves and saves and redeems for the sake of his name. I, that phrase, I don't think we understand either. We, we read that phrase. It's scattered all over Scripture. You see how God moves and acts and saves and redeems, and many times it says that he does it for the sake of his name. Right? Even in Psalm chapter 23, verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Right? It's because God is consumed with his glory. God's purpose is to reveal himself, to reveal his glory, and he does that through the Son, and the Son does that in his obedience to the Father. That's the radiance and the imprint 
revealing his glory, and he does it for the sake of his name. Your salvation, my salvation, the fact that we've been claimed by him is not just for our benefit, but primarily about the glory of his name. That he would look down on me and go, see how Kevin was just uh, wretched, sinful, lost, broken, rebellious, unworthy? Do you see how my love has transcended all of that? Do you see how I have called him and redeemed while he was an enemy of me because of my great love for him? I have called him out of darkness and into me. I did that for my glory. But Kevin is now a child of God to put on display my matchless worth. That the lives that God is weaving together in this room, that he has saved and redeemed and restored for the glory of his name. And because Christ has done that. Like, think about this. Everything God does is for his glory. His rescue, his redeeming, his saving of you is less about you and more about his glory than you realize. It's about his character, his nature. He saves us to display himself. And when he displays himself, what it does is it, it incites worship in his creation. That's the beholding that I always talk about. That when I look at my friends in this room, man, we had an awesome time on this men's retreat these, this last 24 hours. And I got to know some of these guys a little bit more, and I got to hear a little bit more about their story. And I just sat back and I went, God, you're awesome. You are so awesome to save and redeem. You put your glory on display in these men. Jesus does not worship angels, for they are created beings. And he is the creator you see here that he is the object. Jesus is the object of angelic worship. He is the object and the objective of everything. Any of you guys in, in corporate America, right, you can sit down to a meeting and you have to establish your objectives, your goals in the meeting, and then you've got your action steps that are coming out of that thing, right? The objective, he is the objective. He is the object of worship for the, for the angels and for our very lives. He is the objective of our life. And if the angels have reason to worship and exalt Jesus, if they have a passion to worship him endlessly, how much more do we that have experienced his redemption, how much more do we who have been saved by grace, not of ourselves, so that nobody can boast? Pastor David Gutzig points out, Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that Jesus died for angels. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us that he shed his own blood for angels. But all throughout the Bible, we see that Christ died for us. He died for sinners to save us and redeem us, not because of us, not because of our goodness, as if we've earned it, but because of his amazing love and his amazing grace he has for us. So that we would believe on him, that we would behold him, that we would trust him, put our faith in believing in him. And get this. By that believing, we are adopted as what? Sons. We are adopted as sons. Did you, do you get why Jesus is superior to angels? Because he's what? He's a son. 
we inherit the name son. We will inherit his life, that eternal life. He is worthy to be worshipped, yes, by the angels of whom he is greater, more superior, but even more by us who he has redeemed. Not because of me, but just because of his goodness. Just because of his love. So as we conclude, the band comes and we'll worship in a few minutes here. What is it that is the object of our worship? What do we worship? What is the objective of our lives? And because we're all good church people, I know, of course, in our head and our heart, we're going, Jesus, of course. Of course, it's Jesus. The answer is Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. What's brown and bushy, brown and fuzzy, has a bushy tail. It's a squirrel, but everybody goes, no, we're in church, so it's Jesus. The answer is Jesus. The objective of our lives is Jesus. The object of our worship, which is our lives, is Jesus. And of course, we say it with our words. Our mouths would say Jesus. But what about, what about our calendars? See, there's been really kind of convicted with this this last week. Just us having integrity. <laughs> A lot of times you think of integrity or just honesty. And, and really, like, the integrity needs to come first and foremost right here in my heart. The things that I say and actually the things that I do, the way that I live. For each one of us in this room, like I said, I think we'd say a resounding, the object of our worship is Jesus. The object of my life, the objective of my life is Jesus. But then I look at my schedule and I look at my calendar and I look at everything that I'm invested in, everything that I'm pouring into and everything that I'm pouring into and I go, that says something different than this mouth. Think about finances. What do my finances say about the objective of my life and the object of my worship? We tithe of our finances. What, what does the whole treasuring in our heart, the treasure-heart relationship look like? That our hearts follow the treasure. And let's treasure Christ. Let's treasure his kingdom. And, and then beyond giving of a tithe, the, the first and best, do we give open-handed and God-glorifying first with the rest of it? Again, what is the object of our worship? What is our objective in life? Again, this, this is not, I'm not trying to beat us up. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. But again, as I've been stirred, I, I, I want to live with integrity. I want the words from my mouth and the living of this life to actually match up. What about your discussions with your spouse? What about your, your discussions with your kids? We had a great time, uh, like I said, at the men's retreat this last weekend. It was, it was awesome just to challenge each other the idea of leading our household to like men in this room priests of your home pastors of your home leading with conviction those discussions like the way that we talk with our kids and our spouses at home does it indicate that he is the object of our worship does it indicate that he is the objective of our lives are we being passive with it 
we just laid back. We're just, like, there's no active pastoring happening. What about our interactions with our neighbors and our coworkers? It is my prayer and my hope that just as the just as Christ is superior to the angels and the angels are constantly worshiping him that our lives that he would be the objective of our worship that these lives would match up the words that we say when you look at revelation chapter 4 and 5 kind of it describes the worship that happens in heaven all the creatures in heaven singing praise unto Jesus Phrases like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Phrases that reflect what we just read in our Hebrew text. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, Jesus. And by your will they existed and were created. You are the one who upholds everything by the word of your power, Jesus. Then in chapter 5, chapter 5, we read in chapter 5 a few uh, house worships ago, and man, it just gripped me. There's God seated on his throne, and in his right hand is a scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals, and John the Revelator, he just weeps loudly because there's no one there who can open it. There's no one to open the scroll, no one who is worthy to open it. But then behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is conquered, he is there and he can open the scroll. John sees a lamb amongst the elders who looks like it had been slain. And that lamb who was slain took the scroll and all the creatures of heaven fell down and they sang a new song. Verse 9, it says, They all sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Thank you, Jesus. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. He is superior to the angels because he is the object of angel worship, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb of God, the one who is the Son of God, the object of angel worship. Make him the object of your life. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Please respond to the Holy Spirit today. If your life is out of sync with your words, have integrity and repent today. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our voices, but he is worthy of every drop of your life. You can trust him. Please know this too. I know that's scary for some of us. He upholds all things. The word of his power, he will uphold you. You can trust him with your life. Every drop of it.
every ounce of it, every moment of it. Father, we thank you for this day, and I thank you for sending your son. God, for my friends here in this place, God, where our lives are out of sync with your word, <laughs> heck, even where our lives are out of sync with what we say, God, I pray that there would be amazing repentance today. We can't do it in our strength, but we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us the strength, the courage, and the humility to repent and to walk by your Spirit, to not walk in our flesh, to not just walk out of here and try harder to be better. Ugh. I don't want to just try harder to be better. I want to be changed by your Spirit so that this life and your Word would actually line up object of our worship, be the objective of our lives, for you are worthy. You are worthy. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, let's stand and let's worship our God together. And please worship him. Worship Jesus.